Welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I'm Dr. Carla O'Dell, the CEO of APQC. And in this series, I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, I'm going to be talking to Charles Duhigg, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter at the New York Times and a best-selling author of The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business, which, by the way, APQC's Advanced Working Group picked as their book selection in 2013. And then we had Charles Keynote, and that darn book is still on the New York Times bestseller list 60 weeks later. Charles, I think we probably had everything to do with that, don't you? <laughs> I think so. I think so, uh, absolutely. Well, then I predict great things for the next book. His new book is out, which is Smarter, Faster, Better, The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and Business, which I have read and loved. And it is, again, on the bestseller list. You are way overachiever. Um, but since productivity is in APQC's middle, literally our middle name, American Productivity and Quality Center, we're delighted to welcome you back, Charles, and to find out more about the new book. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so let's let's start with these questions and see where they take us. Uh, set the stage for us, Charles. What questions were you trying to answer by researching and writing the book? Well, I, this started when I was um, particularly right after the Power of Habit had come out. I was it, that that book started doing well, but better than I had expected, and I felt really fortunate for that. And at the same time, I was working on a series for the New York Times about Apple and how using Apple as a lens for looking at the global economy. And that series was going well. It, it um, went on to win the, the Pulitzer Prize. And so if professionally, it was a really great year for me. But I would come home and um, talk to my wife, and you know, I'd get home at 6.30, and, and, it, and we have two kids, and all I'd really want to do is have dinner with my kids and then put them to bed and watch you know, bad TV with my wife. And, and, and I would say to her, you know, if, if this is what success feels like, like, sign me back up for failure because this is just, this is just impossibly hard. And I think, I think other people have had this feeling that, that I would get home and all I'd want to do is relax and I'd have 100 emails to deal with and two or three memos that I meant to finish during the day that I hadn't gotten around to because I'd been too busy. And, and I, felt like, I felt like I didn't understand why, but I was, the harder and harder and faster I was running, the farther and farther I was falling behind. And so I really wanted to understand why do some people seem to get so much more done? Why do some people seem more productive without encountering you know, huge amounts of stress and strife and, and having to make enormous sacrifices? And so I started reaching out to researchers and asking them, what do we know about the science of productivity, about why some people are more productive than others? And what they told me is that the people who are most productive, what's unusual about them is it's not that they work harder, spend longer hours at their desks. Rather, it's that they seem to train themselves to think differently, and in particular to think differently about things like how they maintain their focus, how they choose goals, how they prioritize, how they, how they encourage innovation among themselves and their teammates. And so I decided that I wanted to write a book exploring these eight ideas, these eight concepts that kept on coming up that seemed at the core of what the most productive people do differently from everyone else and what we know about the neurology and the psychology and the organizational behavior of becoming productive. Of course, I loved it because you were talking about changing mindsets and then all of the behaviors and techniques and tools that you can use after that. So one of them is about changing the way you think about motivating yourself 
And, you know, people who are self-motivators tend to be happier. They make more money. Life is better when you're internally driven rather than externally. So what are some right and wrong ways to motivate ourselves that you learn? One of the the things that we know about the neurology of motivation is that neurologically, motivation emanates from a part of our brain known as the basal ganglia, in particular uh, a structure known as the striata which becomes active when we feel motivated. And the way that this part of our brain becomes activated is when we feel like we're in control, when we feel like we can make choices. People who are simply following orders, who feel like they're replying or responding to life rather than having some agency over themselves, those people tend to have much more trouble self-motivating. And what's interesting is that we can teach ourselves or our colleagues or our kids how to motivate by finding choices within chores. What's interesting, and in the book we tell the story of the U.S. Marines and how they redesigned Marine Corps boot camp in order to teach this skill. You know, there was a a general named Charles Krulak who overhauled how boot camp functioned with the goal of trying to present recruits with many more opportunities to make decisions, essentially forcing them to make decisions. Because what it does is it activates what's known as a bias towards action. It allows us to feel that sense of control and self-determination that, as everyone listening to this podcast knows, feels so good, right? That, that's the same instinct that we feel when we're driving down the freeway and we're stuck in a traffic jam and we see an exit. And we know it's going to take us just as long to, to take that exit. But, but there's something in our brain that makes us want to turn the wheel and take control and get out of this traffic jam and just make a choice. That's the same instinct that lies at the core of self-motivation. And so the more that we can find ways to make ourselves feel in control, the more that we can look at an email and say, can I make a choice in replying to this email? Or I have some task I need to get done. Can I find some decision at the core of it, at the center of it, even a meaningless decision? Can I find that choice that allows me to feel like I'm in charge? That's going to help people self-motivate for tasks. Now, now, and that's important and that's interesting But for self-motivation over a long period, simply finding a choice is the important first step, but it's oftentimes not enough on its own. To really have sustainable self-motivation, we then also have to link what we're doing to our bigger goals and aspirations. We have to find, we have to answer the question of why am I doing this? And sometimes it's as simple as simply asking ourselves why. You know, one researcher I was talking to, he was an oncologist, and he said that he he hated grading students' papers. least favorite part of his job. And so before he would start grading students' papers, he would sit down and he would sort of go through this mantra. And the mantra was, I'm grading students' papers because that allows the university to collect tuition dollars. And if they collect tuition dollars, then that allows them to fund my research. And if they fund my research, I can do what I love and I can save people's lives. And he found that that made it easier for him to sit down and start grading those students' papers. And he would also find a choice inherent in it. He'd start with, you know, question two, or he'd, he'd find the part of it that he liked the most and start with that because it felt like he was making a decision, like he was in, in control. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is a guy with an MD, PhD in oncology. You don't think of him as the type of person who would struggle to motivate himself, who, who should need this mantra. And yet the truth of the matter is that it's very easy to fall into a reactive mindset, to fall into a, a frame of mind where we're just reacting to emails or to tasks or to assignments, and that even the smartest people, by finding ways to remind themselves that they're in control and that the work that they're doing 
is genuinely meaningful, they they manage to to generate more self-motivation that way. And there's a real lesson for all of us that there's a value to that. You know, I tend to think of it as I spend a lot of my life being a human busy instead of a human being. And it's because you get this illusion of accomplishment every time you get rid of an email or you check a task off. And sometimes the choice is better to not even have the, uh, taken on the task and to not That's exactly right. Email. Yeah. And, and we know that from studies. I mean, wh- one of the interesting things is that until essentially the 1950s, being busy and being productive were very, very much synonymous, right? If you, if you were someone who worked at General Electric and, or you worked in a factory, then if you were busy, you were probably also productive. But one of the things that's changed in the last 50 years, and this is only accelerated in the last 15 years, the digital revolution has really taken hold, is that, that that busyness and productivity link has become broken. So you can spend an entire day now replying to emails and getting to inbox zero and feel like you've gotten a lot done, but on reflection realize that the, the tasks that you did, they weren't the most important things to have done that day. They weren't actually productive. You were simply responding to something because it made you feel busy. And this gets at the core of what we know about what the most productive people do that's different from everyone else, is they're much more cognizant about pushing themselves to think about what is genuinely productive rather than what is merely busy. Yeah, exactly. And because there's a certain emptiness that comes not just with your inbox, but also in your life if that's what you accomplished that day. You know it when you haven't done anything meaningful. You know it too. So if you want to live a full life, you've got to not maybe answer all those emails. So let's talk about that. You said the second core, uh, goal of after someone makes a choice and gets out of that victim mindset is to tie it to their bigger aspirations and goals. Talk about that. What kind of goal setting can help us be more productive? Well, it's interesting. So, so one of my favorite examples of this is there's been a tremendous amount of research done around to-do lists. And what they found is that most people write to-do lists probably the same way that I used to write to-do lists, which is that you use to-do lists as an external memory aid. So, so you sit down and you come up with a list of tasks that you want to get done that day, right? And, and, and usually people write the easiest tasks at the top of the page. In, in fact, studies show that about, in about 15% of cases, people will write at the top of their to-do list something they've actually already done because it feels so good to sort of sit down and be able to check it off right away. And, and what's interesting about that is that studies show that that actually oftentimes undermines our productivity because our brain is constantly looking for ways to save energy. And when we have a list of tasks, what our brain will do is it'll look for the easiest tasks. It'll, it'll automatically glom on to those things that we can get done quickly because it feels so good to check them off. And so what psychologists recommend is that the right way to write a to-do list is not just to use it as an external memory aid to keep track of those tasks we want to finish, but rather to use it as a device for pushing ourselves to think about our priorities. And in particular, what they recommend is they recommend using a to-do list, and at the top of it, writing what's known as a stretch goal. So what's your biggest, most important goal for today, for this week, for this month? Put that at the top of your list. And the reason why that's important is because that way, every time you look at your to-do list, you're being reminded of what you ought to get done. What's the biggest, hardest thing that you want to do? And 
it gives you an opportunity to ask yourself, is what I'm doing right now, does it line up with my biggest goal? If I just spent the last 45 minutes returning emails, but what it says at the top of my to-do list, that my stretch goal for today was to write that memo that I've been avoiding for the last four days, should I be spending this time replying to emails, or, or am I simply avoiding writing this memo because I think it's going to be hard? And so that's how we can use a to-do list, for instance, as what's known as a contemplative device, something that pushes us to think a little bit more deeply about the choices that we're making. And ultimately, that is what separates productive people from everyone else. How wisely am I choosing how to spend my time? God, that is great. Thank you for that. The, it's such a good reminder to keep that right in front of you and, and what really matters to you right at the top of the list. That is such a good reminder. You know, that's one of the things I liked about the book was that you, and, and I'll put another plug in for it right now, Smarter, Faster, Better, The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and Business. We're talking to Charles Duhigg. Charles, the, uh, what I liked about it was not only were there tools and techniques that I could use immediately and that have, you know, some grounding in, in science and evidence, but also things that were very uh, relatable to how we can be more productive in our organizations. And one of my thought our uh, listeners and readers would really enjoy hearing about is what you found out about teams when you studied Google and Saturday Night Live, which are not that different. Well, it's surprisingly, they're successful for similar reasons. So uh, Google, and, and if folks are familiar with this, it might be because they read the excerpt of the book in the New York Times Magazine about Google's attempt to build the perfect team. So Google, um, a number of years ago, decided to spend four years and millions of dollars trying to build the perfect team. And at first, they, their suspicion was that building the perfect team was reliant on trying to figure out who belongs on teams together. Like maybe you need a combination of introverts and extroverts, or maybe you need, maybe you need um, people who are friends away from the conference room so that they, that they know each other really well, or maybe you need people who, who all want strong leaders or weak leaders. And so for, for two years, they collected data on teams inside Google, asked people, que people questions. And what they eventually discovered was that they couldn't find any patterns between team effectiveness and who was on a team. So then they said, okay, look, we've we got to attack this problem a little bit differently because this doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere. And they said, this time, instead of looking at who is on a team, we're going to start looking at how a team interacts. And that's when they suddenly started figuring out why some teams were more successful than others. How a team interacts with each other, the social norms that a team develops, seems to be critical to whether that team is successful or not. And one of the best, one of the, and they found that there were two behaviors in particular that seemed to distinguish the best teams. The first was that on teams where people were particularly successful, they found that people spoke in roughly equal proportion. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone said the same number of words during every single meeting, but they did find that during every meeting, everyone spoke at least once, and that that it wasn't that there was an expert who sort of knew everything and everyone else would just listen to them, but that rather people would drop in and out of the conversation roughly equally. Secondarily, though, it wasn't enough just for people to be able to speak. The other behavior that these best teams had is that they, were what's, they, were, they engaged in what's referred to as ostentatious listening, 
Or put differently, people would very de- demonstrate very clearly that they were listening to each other by doing things like picking up on nonverbal cues or repeating what someone had just said or, for instance, closing their laptops so they could make eye contact with each other. And when you have these two behaviors, this equality and conversational turn-taking and this ostentatious listening, what you tend to get is what's known as psychological safety. And psychological safety is so shown in experiments and, and studies to be the single most important thing in helping a team gel together. And it's that feeling that you can be your whole self in a team setting, that you can, you can take risks in what you're saying and that, that there won't it won't be held against you. There won't be negative consequences for speaking, for, for trying out a concept or speaking your mind. And that's what the people have found is the most critical component to making a team work, which brings us to Saturday Night Live. Now, what's interesting about Saturday Night Live is that it's a, it's a show that, in theory, never should have been successful, right? You've got a bunch of comedians who are known for being a little bit antisocial in a room together. And if one person's skit gets on the air, it means another person's skit was cut. So the question is, why has Saturday Night Live been so consistently successful? And the answer seems to be how Lorne Michaels, the executive producer, runs those meetings. He's like a model of creating psychological safety. He goes out of his way to force people to speak up, even if they're uncomfortable doing so. He takes breaks to, to say things like, John, I, I notice you haven't said anything in a little while. Like, tell me what's going on inside your head. Like, what are you thinking about? He is someone who creates psychological safety through this very obvious demonstration of believing that psychological safety is necessary, of encouraging people to speak up and listen to each other. And that's why, according to the cast members of the original seasons and today's seasons of Saturday Night Live, that's why that show is so successful. You know, I believe that. I was going to say that I thought the way that leaders model behavior makes a big difference. And even when I've seen Lauren Michaels on TV being interviewed, he seems like a sweetheart that he sort of by his very demeanor kind of creates in, in what is must be a incredibly hectic and, and craze producing environment uh, of safety. I think the whole thing about psychological safety is really, really important. Um, so you've did all the research, you talked to some of the smartest people in the world. Um, what'd you learn? What, what changed in your life? What habits changed? If you don't mind me harking back to that. Well, the biggest thing that's changed for me is that this basic insight that of a distinction between being busy and being productive is really powerful. And I think the reason why it's so powerful is because it helps us remember that, that how easy it is to fall into a reactive mindset, how easy it is to walk in and say, oh, I've got a, you know, 20 new emails. I need to deal with those. Or, or someone's sticking their head in and asking me to go to a meeting. I should really go to that meeting. Those are all really reactive poses, right? It's, it's much easier to just walk into a meeting, to sit through someone else's agenda. But I don't know that that's productive. And so, and so what I try and do every day now is I try and create time and space to really think about what I ought to be doing. I write a to-do list that has a, uh, a stretch goal. Every morning I write a new, new to-do list with a stretch goal that, that clarifies what I'm really hoping to get done that day. And then throughout the day, I, I look at that and I make sure that the task that I'm doing, it actually lines up with what my stretch goal is, that I'm, I'm actively thinking about what I ought to be doing rather than simply reacting to what's easiest. In addition, I spend a lot of time doing things like, like visualizing how I want meetings to unfold. And, and, you know, in the book, we go over these eight concepts that, that research shows are at the core of what the most productive people do, that sort of distinguish how the most productive people think from everyone else. 
and I spend a lot of time trying to bake those into my life. Now, now this doesn't take a lot of time. This isn't a huge lift. But what's interesting about it is that, is that it, it has helped convince me that, that thinking just half an inch more deeply about my own life and my own productivity makes me so much more productive. It, it's not that the most productive people, that they're, they're spending huge amounts of time thinking about productivity. It's that they're spending just a little bit of time making sure that they're doing things like focusing on the right goals, that they're setting priorities to help themselves remain focused on what's important rather than simply reacting to other people's demands, that they think about how innovation works. They think about how their teams should function rather than just jumping into an agenda and, and sort of just proceeding down without paying attention to how people interact with each other. That this, this, Creating these habits or these practices that allow us to think just a little bit more deeply, they're incredibly important in helping us become more productive. And they don't take much work. They don't take huge sacrifices. But they do encourage us to think differently. And in doing so, we end up seeing choices and control that's available to us that is really transformative. Well, one choice I'm going to make as soon as this call is over, I'm going to sit down and write my stretch goal for the day and think how I can make the next meeting more meaningful. There will be hard to match the meaning that came out of this one, Charles. I wish we had more time today. I really recommend Smarter, Faster, and Better to everybody who's got a personal quest to be more happy, more productive, and not just more busy. And I want to thank you for joining us. It's great to talk to you again. Um, we love oh, having people like you. you on Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. And everybody, if uh, not only read the book, but if you want to learn more about what we're doing and, and and where to find out more about Charles, go to our website, www.apqc.org. And thank you all for listening, and have a great day. <laughs>